0: Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. I am honored to have Karen Fetter with me today. And Karen, I've heard your name over well especially the last two and a half years since I started the podcast people like you need to talk to Karen and I'd, I had assumed you were in the show and I know you had a book out I'm like oh I need to get a hold of Karen because of the history of like the Follies Berger and the Tropicana and finding out that you weren't even in the shows and that actually really intrigued me more like why someone who wasn't in it who thought it was glorious would come at it from the from your view and find something worth del- diving into and make- writing a whole book on it. So first welcome, and thank you for saying yes to this.
1: Yes, thank you, Sherry. I'm happy to talk to your audience. Um, yeah, so my, my um, journey to um, sort of this expertise in cabaret has been really fascinating and something that I never expected, but I kind of fell into. I, was, I started work as the curator of costume and textiles at the Nevada State Museum, Las Vegas. And when I started at first working with that collection, um, it seemed to me as I got a good overview of the collection after a, a little bit of time there, it seemed to me that there weren't quite enough representative pieces of costumes from our stage shows over the years. And it seemed to me that if, we, if the museum really started focusing on collecting that particular narrow genre of costume, that the collection could really distinguish itself from other costume and textile collections, not just within the state, but within the world. If we really focused on cabaret costume and what Las Vegas is famous for in terms of stage costumes, that it would be a significant collection and one that would endure and go on to really represent the people of Las Vegas in a honorable and honest way. Um, so I started reaching out to all sorts of productions and all sorts of people to let them know that this was going to be a new mission for the museum. And um, you know, collected pieces, little bits here and there turns out that, you know, even though the productions owned these pieces, a lot of times when folks left the show, um, sometimes small little bits and pieces were able to like slip out the door. Mm -hmm. People have been
0: admitting that lately. I've been hearing people admit like, oops,
1: it went in my costume box. (laughs) I totally get it, right? I mean, you sort of feels like it's yours, right? What do you mean someone else is going to wear this thing? This is mine. I mean, that's that's the nature and the intimacy of costume is when it's against your body like that i mean it really it helps tell the story um so i so we 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 collected a few pieces and during this time um we learned that the foley berger which had been running for almost 60 50 years or so was finally going to close in 2009 and um There was no plan. No one knew what they wanted to do with the collection. There were thousands of pieces. And um, for a period of time, years, I would reach out to um, the casino and ask them what, you know, I'm from the museum and we collect these costumes and we'd like to collect a few pieces from the Fully Berger show to add to our costume and texture collection at the museum and they're like and eh, I don't know yet because we're still thinking we don't know we may auction we don't know you know so they so I kept bothering them over and over and over I kept reaching out just on a sort of regular basis to remind them that uh, we were here and we were interested and how what can we do to help. and. Um, At some point during this time, I heard that there was a big production show that was slated to come into booked into the theater Mama Mia and I knew that Mama Mia was a super heavy costume show that they were going to need because I knew all these costumes had been stored in the dressing rooms backstage at the theater and they were just taking up space and I thought I bet you anything they're not going to have space for Mama Mia to come in there with all these costumes. So I made a big push to reach out to them at that point in time. They're like, you know what? If the museum, this was their, this was their offer. If the museum can come and take out all the costumes, everything, you have to take everything over the weekend. You can have it all. <gasps> and all we ask for is that you provide us with a really detailed um, inventory, line item inventory. And so happily, um, you know, our museum director agreed to this. And a few days later, we had like 8,000 pieces from the Foley Berger at the Nevada State Museum, Las Vegas. And so of course I was thrilled. And the, the problem I had was that this was a show I had never seen. And I, you know, had to figure out what do I do? How do I figure out what I have, right? I have the costume. I don't know who wore it, when it was worn, who designed it, was it even worn? Was it a onstage costume? Was it an offstage costume? Was it worn for more than one year? Who, you know, I mean, there, there were a lot of questions that needed answers. And so I just slowly began this huge research project um, I started reaching out to all the folks that I could get my hands on that actually worked with the show. And I invited them to come look at the collection with me and to document what they remembered. Like if they remember, I remember wearing this and this number, and I was in the show during these years, and you know, took also um, sort of oral histories from them in terms of, you know, there are, you know, so many interesting things about I hated this costume because or I love this costume because, or this was my favorite because, or I remember this. And so there was a lot of that kind of work. And then I also started a um, photographic research project. There is um, an, an archive, a local, a few local archive, archives I use. The, the most important one for, for my work was the Las Vegas News Bureau. And the News Bureau has been taking photographs of all of our shows on Las Vegas since the late 40s. And they had an extensive archive of thousands and thousands of photographs of the Foley Berger beginning when they first opened in 59. And so I literally would look at a photograph, see if I recognized the costume, go back to the collection, try to find the costume and match. And that way I could match dates visually but then I would try to cross reference my interpretation with someone that I knew was in the show saying is this right right is this am I right about this guess matching these things visually and a lot of times I was a lot of times I wasn't um so so that's how I got involved in researching cabaret so that of course led me to meet all sorts of people like you Sherry where you dance not just in a single production but lots of different productions and so those folks that I met were able to help me with other pieces from other shows in the collection and slowly but surely I like you know became sort of an expert on mostly the costumes because that is my that's my passion and that's really what you know I, I do is um, help bring life to these little pieces of artwork from my point of view. And of course, the bodies that made these costumes and that worked in these costumes and that took care of these costumes are all important narratives that I, um, you know, am interested in sharing and documenting. And, and that's how the fully Berger in Las Vegas, the book happened is because after you know, a few years of doing this research, I realized that I probably had a little bit more information than most people and I just wanted to make sure that if something happened to me, um, it would all be on paper and someone could pick up my research quite easily from the book and move forward with it.
0: Wow, wow. This is fabulous. I, when we were talking before I recorded that I just had an interview with Marion, I'm gonna say her last name wrong, who's a dresser at the Lido in Paris and her story about that last few nights of just how emotional, but everybody wants to know what happens to those costumes. And she has a video going, they have an offsite storage for the costumes that go back to the forties for Paris. And there's, they still feel alive, but I don't know if they're cat uh, cataloged or anything. If they're like you said, line by line, like who wore it, how long, who made it, but they're just hanging there and everyone's like, what's going to happen to these costumes. So that's important to a lot of us. And I don't know if you want to address, I might jump all over the place. I have so many questions because I'd heard not until I did the the interviews of that. They would in Vegas. I don't know if they did it in Paris, burn, take them out in the desert and burn them. I've heard different reasons for that. Do you know that part? Because some of this history is living in storage somewhere. Some of it is like Karen Burns is bringing some of these costume pieces out for events and, get them seen in the public and some are just poof, they just yeah. are gone forever. And yeah,
1: the burning story is just fascinating. So that did, in fact, happen in Vegas. I, as I started the research, I would hear that story every once in a while. And I'm like, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't, I, I'm not sure about that. Right. So I kept it in the back of my mind and I just kept trying to figure out how do I prove this? Right. I mean, even though people are telling me that I hadn't met anyone yet firsthand who had seen it, And so I I was like, eh, let me just think about this and see if I can actually prove it um, from a primary source. So at some point in time, I ran across when I was researching in the news bureau's files, there was, (coughs) excuse me, a video that was, and the video wasn't, um, it had a date on it, but it didn't have a descriptive title. So I wasn't sure what I was looking at. But the video showed it was, um, there was like a big pile that was in the middle of a very vacant area. It really did look like the desert. You didn't see buildings behind or in front. You just saw a big pile of stuff. There was a man standing in front of the video, a very sort of officious looking man. He was holding a clipboard. It was dated, this video was dated early 60s. And then, oddly, you see walk into the frame, a woman who looks like a showgirl dressed in not a showgirl costume, but like a bikini cheesecake kind of costume from the early (laughs) sixties. And she literally is holding a Tiki torch that is lit on fire. And she takes this torch and lights this big pile on fire. And then when you look closely at the pile, you see at the bottom, there are like, obviously like sort of set pieces and feathers, and you can kind of get a glimpse of the detail of what's in this pile. And, you, and then you realize that probably the man that is standing there with the clipboard is from the tax department. And that is because the city of Las Vegas had a tax rule from the late 50s through the 60s wherein if you imported, because the Fully Berger costumes and sets were all made, built and designed in Paris and then shipped over for Las Vegas to use on our stage. And so the city allowed, and because there were a handful of productions that were doing this in town on the strip, Lido obviously was Mm -hmm. the other big one. Um, The city allowed the production to import the, the value of those sets and costumes and to not have to pay duty on them for two years, between two and three years. So it depends on who you talk to in the city and it's, it's vague. And I think it may have changed, fluctuated back and forth between two and three years. So that's, so at, at the two year mark, the production had the option of shipping everything back to avoid duty to pay duty, which on a million dollar show was a lot of money or to destroy it. And obviously the cheapest way to get around this tax burden was to destroy sets and costumes. And so that's what happened regularly. The upside, the glass half full is that Las Vegas as a result got new shows every other year, right? I doubt that would have happened unless the production was forced to do that, right? So that's the upside, but the downside is a lot of it was destroyed. Now, I've, I have run across things that were supposed to have been burnt and destroyed during that period of time that are still around. So people did squirrel away stuff and save it, but not everything. Um, and in fact, most of the pieces that the museum collected from the fully Berger were from 1975 forward. And 1975 is the first year that La Folie Bergère was designed and built in America. So from 59 to 74, all Parisian, you know, design elements were coming in. But 75 forward it became an Americanized show. So um, yeah, that, so they were, bur- and Lido, now I, I haven't done the research on Lido, but I can't imagine Lido had to do anything differently with their costumes.
0: I had heard so, it from some people from Lido, but I, everybody was kind of guessing of why, but the tax thing.
1: Yeah, it's a money thing, up. it was just a money thing and so you know sad but true um but that as a result i mean it makes it even more significant the pieces that do survive and why the you know the costume collection at the state museum is so significant and important is because there's just not a lot left there is another another interesting thing that happened was the wardrobe department took it upon themselves during this period of time when they knew stuff was going to be destroyed before stuff ended up in the bonfire they would remove from costumes um, embellishments that they felt were still viable and might be reused so part of the um collection the state museum received is really fascinating because they're obvious obviously they're just parts and pieces of embellishments that were taken off of costumes. You can still see the stitches that are still hanging there. Um, And so at one point in time, I went through these pieces and tried to identify what costumes these pieces had come from. Oh my gosh. That was interesting. Um, And the other part of the collection fascinating is it turns out that when the costumes came over from Paris, the designer who, um, Michelle Guillaumati, was always the costume designer during that period of time, they would send over um, additional replacement sequined applique embellishments to replace like mostly for gloves or center front pieces on costumes, um, sequined pieces that they knew would get a lot of wear and tear and wouldn't look great after a year's time. So duplicates of those embellishments would come over, and so there were many of those embellishments that were never used. They were just extras, and those were saved for decades and decades and decades. And even when the state museum went in, and you know, in 2010s teens, um, to get the collection, some of these Parisian sequined appliques were still in perfect condition, just waiting for you know a second life. Um, so that, you know, those survived, those didn't let those, you know, the warder was smart enough to say, well, these don't count. Right. So, (laughs) um, those, those were saved. So it's, you know, those that, you know, this, those are just really fascinating stories to me. Um, and those are things that, you know, of course the public would never have any notion of, I would never have any notion of unless this you know, underlying research had been done as a result of the collection landing at the State Museum. Oh my
0: gosh. I've interviewed Pete Menefee several times, met with him in person when I did my showgirl road trip with Athena and hearing him talk about doing Hello Hollywood Hello, which was his first Don Arden Bluebell show and then have the same experience with Jubilee, which um, Bob Mackie did part, but Pete did a lot of them of just the whole carte blanche to go to fly to Paris. They fly him to Paris and go pick out your feathers from the, I learned the word plumassier, that these people specialize in feathers and have a history in their family of how they take care of the feathers. And it was just all these things I never thought about in it. And it just sounds like this wonderful time in history that probably will never be repeated, that there it seems unlimited. Yeah. He would go to Swarovski and they would just have everything laid out for him of what they thought he might want. And just to pick and have their shoes made in Paris. So it's so extravagant. And then you think Hello Hollywood ran 11 years and Karen Burns has most of that collection. I know some are with Grant Filippo at the Showgirl Museum. And then Jubilee, when we went into the, to Bally's, which used to be the MGM to see some of those are in cases. So for me, I think they're beautiful because I wore something similar, but for Athena who did that show to see them there still, instead of just the pictures, it feels. I don't know, honoring to the whole thing that is now gone, that they're just not lying birds in the desert or in boxes somewhere that there's at least a few that we can go see. But then like how some of those shows, because I did hear like, how did they do that two years? Because the very first Lido show that came from Paris, they flew all the costumes, all the dancers, Miss Bluebell, Bluebell herself. And then they did it two years and left. I'm like, Financially, that seems crazy because Jubilee got their money out of that thirty what yeah. thirty four years they ran yeah. it, and so like Hello Hollywood was only supposed to go five years and win eleven, so maybe maybe there's Reno had a different tax thing, but it does seem like it's so extravagant. Well,
1: yeah, it was an entirely different. Same with Jubilee; they weren't under license. Lido and Fully Berger in Las Vegas were granted a license from the oh. Parisian production to be the sole American show. So oh, okay. they they were very restricted on what they could do. And they couldn't, like, there was no, you know, they had to show the, the, the Fully Berger show you saw here in Vegas was designed, it basically was the same show you saw in Paris, but probably two years later in America. Yeah. And they had total control on what the content was going to be on stage. So yeah, they, they, It was all, they were very limited in how they didn't change anything. Um, But yes, Pete um, is a talent that is so unique. Um, He's of a generation of this sort of this cabaret designer that, you know, I don't, we have very few, a handful of these folks that are left because it's such a unique art form And what I'm a big fan of, of Pete's work. And I think what Pete does better than anyone in this genre is his ability to incorporate wit into the cabaret genre in a way that still reads as sensual. And as a result, sometimes doesn't really take itself as seriously as the cabaret wants to. But I just think it results in the most entertaining um, presentation and no one else can, can do it like, like Pete. And happily, um, the State Museum was able to, Pete was, was nice enough to donate all of his original sketches for um, all of his Vegas shows, which would have been for Jubilee for the Reno show for um, Hello Hollywood and for Splash too. Uh, Pete was the original designer for Splash here at the Riviera in Vegas. And so there are hundreds of Pete's wonderful artworks that represent his um, costumes that were realized on the stage. And there is just so much um, to learn uh, for researchers going forward on having the, This collection from Pete, I think, is probably maybe a little more important, in fact, than the actual three-dimensional costumes the State Museum collected, because you get to see the breadth of what Cabaret was doing on a number of shows, different theme shows, like the Splash show, you know, was an, they called it in the in the um, literature that advertised the show an aquacade because there was, you know, there was a lot, of, there was the, the tank of water and there's the mermaids and stuff. And there's these fantastic costumes that Pete, that are like long lost. No one knows if the costumes actually still exist, but we have the original sketches and, and, you know, Pete designed, a, you know, lobster showgirl costume and an octopus showgirl and a starfish. And you're like, how does that work? How does Pete make an octopus costume <laughs> work on a showgirl and still have that, you know, sensual quality that, you know, a mannequin is supposed to have? But he totally does it. And it's hysterical. Um, so so, yeah, but I agree with you. Um, you know, the Jubilee, I'm glad that um, at Bali's you can walk into the casino and every once in a while run into an actual vintage. Jubilee costume designed by either Bob Mackey or Pete Menefee. That represents a certain period of time in Las Vegas. At, and during that period of time, America, Las Vegas, was the pinnacle of this genre. Now, America was doing, of course, Paris was doing its own cabaret thing at the same time. America was doing it bigger, much bigger. They were spending much more money on it. Um, And the American cabaret scene during the 70s and 80s is unique from the German scene, from the French scene, from the South American scene. Um, They're all unique statements. And, um, you know, it's, I agree with this, I consider the Jubilee show probably is the most decadent cabaret show ever ever built ever will be built no one could spend Mm. that much money um (laughs) on on a show and and to think that it actually was built twice right the first the first oh yeah burned in the fire and they had to replicate it so you know those costumes are super important and um you know we'll you know they're being they're saved backstage they're there And no one quite knows what to do with them but at least they're still there and and you know they the the folks that take care of those costumes have been nice enough to they let the state museum borrow them a few times to put on display for certain exhibitions so they realize the importance of the costumes to the community and um you know and but it's a hard thing figure out how to do for one thing they're worth a lot of money if you if they went to auction um you know the other factor is that they are important to the community the other factor is they they're expensive to just take care of they're just taking up i mean there's a lot of it's not an easy decision so it's it's hard for the property for the casino those decisions are hard it's hard for whoever is going to be taking responsibility for them going forward when the state museum said yes we'll take eight thousand costumes from the tropicana That was, you know, a really significant responsibility to take on, you know, the State Museum is now responsible for taking care of all those costumes forever, right? And we not only took responsibility for taking care of them, but it is also the job of the museum to interpret and to show and share, to offer those pieces to researchers, to students, um, to the general public. So it's a lot, it's, you know, it's a lot to consider when you, when you, you know, say yes to a collection. And so, you know, Karen's collection is super important. Um, You know, her hello, Hollywood collection, because it is pretty, you know, the footprint of it is huge. And she said yes to everything too. Right. She just said, okay, I'll take it. And it came with thousands of pieces. And so it's a big job um she is very passionate about it because you know as we talked about this is a really you know a garment is a very intimate thing Karen wore some of those pieces and so it's very important that she represents those pieces and takes care of them going forward so we're lucky to have Karen who took on that responsibility because who knows what would have happened to it if she didn't say yes to making that collection happen
0: yeah well, you would, well, I was, I'm going two directions because I did the showgirl road trip with Athena. I don't know if she's interviewed you. Yes. Um, yes. yes. I thought, I, I, thought I Athena, moved her huh? here. yeah. yeah. So Reno was my, you know, joy. And then I lived in Vegas for two months and had seen many shows over the time, but we both had our places kind of where our heart was. So when I got to go to Karen's and just she goes, go ahead and just walk through because they're all in there. Just like even things I didn't wear. I'm like, I remember that. I remember that. And you just, it all comes back. Now, wait, let me Um, ask you, because when
1: you saw a costume that you recognized that you wore, did the choreography that went with that costume immediately come back to you?
0: A little bit. She brought out the feather fans. She goes, go ahead and go play. See, she was so gracious. I thought I was going to stand there. Don't breathe. Don't touch them. And she brought a rack out. And so she had some, each one of my costumes, not necessarily mine, but It came back. And then when I had the fans, I'm like, Oh, I'm an old woman. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my gosh, I, my arms remember this. And then the rose petal thing she let me play with. And then we had xylophones and one number, which I couldn't remember the tune, but I took the stance that I did for two shows a night for a year. It it was wonderful. And then just to see how well they're
1: fascinating that, that, that there's muscle memory that is triggered from the visual of the costume that that connection in the brain happens i found fascinating because we i experienced that when we first received the collection at the museum i invited a handful of foley berger alums to come and just sort of walk through nothing was processed everything was still in piles it was horrible and they literally would find something of theirs and you would see them start to do the choreography that went with it this could this could have been from 40 years ago. I know mine was
0: 40 years. That's what's amazing. Shocking.
1: (laughs) Right. And, but this happened continually over and over and over. So there is some neurological, biological thing that happens. And that is a, that's a research project waiting to happen there too. Oh my
0: gosh. Yeah. Well, I know for her, she's trying to do this during COVID. And so she hadn't had much going on and just, she's so passionate and I told you before we recorded, I was so giddy. Athena's video, which I love that she thought to video things. I was just in in that realm and forgot the camera. So I have some great footage. That, and she caught him in the more of the tender moments that were not just me posing with it. It was me seeing them. And then because I was so happy, Karen was so happy. And then I was so happy that Karen was so happy. And this kept going because I think when you feel like nobody cares about it anymore, it's hard. Like I put all this... Yeah, life into it, and some dancers really didn't come back. But I feel like a lot of us have because the reunions are looking at the photos again and remembering, and then these we're really glad there's people that have invested. But you said the people of Las Vegas care about this because that's been a discussion because they're really they put the new showgirl marquees up that light up. I don't know if it's the sign that is a Las Vegas thing, and if the Las Vegas people, I mean, a lot of people moved there recently, and I don't know if they even know the history of what Vegas means. But when it matters and people come to the museum, does it tend to be tourists? I mean, it's probably a little bit of everything. Do people that actually live in Las Vegas want to come see this? Like, who are the people that?
1: Oh yes. So I, you know, I would say the majority of the folks that visit the state museum are community members, and we represent the community, right? And let's face it, you know, these cabaret shows—people moved here from all over the world um for the opportunity to dance in these shows they stayed here they built families here this became their livelihood as a result of our entertainment scene so these are you know our early settlers these entertainers so um you know from my point of view the costume text collection really does well to represent these folks that built las vegas that made las vegas the entertainment capital of the world um, so you know, there are there's a broad range of people that come to the museum, but um, in, I, I feel that it's probably most important that we represent the community and offer, you know ex- ways for the community to see these pieces. Now, I get a, you know a lot of feedback we, we did receive from the community that, well, like, where is all this? Where are these 8,000 people? pieces. You don't share them with the community. Well, in fact, I, you know, there's no opportunity for any museum to show 8,000 pieces at one time, right? (laughs) So, you know, the majority of any museum's collection is going to be in storage at any point in time, but having a collection that is that large and comprehensive does afford the museum an opportunity to always have something on display, and the state museum has a, um, what they call a showgirl wall, which is a permanent display of rotating showgirl and showboy um, costumes from over the years, from different shows. So you go, you will go to the State Museum, you will always see a representative display of cabaret costumes. Now I don't know that there's any other museum in the world that you can go to on any day of the week and see cabaret costumes on display. So this is super unique to the Las Vegas Museum and I'm really proud to have helped um, garner this legacy um, for the State Museum going forward. There's still a lot of work to do with the collection and there's always new things to collect of course, Um, But, you know, there's a really good start to that collection now, and um, it is totally a a worthwhile effort that I, you know, and, and, you know, there's just so much more research to be done, but, um, yeah, so, anyway. I can't believe
0: I didn't see it when I was down there. That road trip was a whirlwind, but we're talking about doing it again, maybe this late spring, early summer, because I need to get there. I saw Grant Filippo's and we didn't have much time because we had booked ourselves with so many things. And that was that was really fun. And then Sue Kim to go to UNLV and get to look through Miss Bluebell and Don Arden's books. But I know there's other shows. It's just because I did those shows. I did I would have loved to have also seen all the other like the Tropicana and have more time because now my interest has peaked even more. I need yeah. Way more time in Las Vegas. There's
1: not, that's, that's the sad thing. There aren't a lot of, you know, Grant's collection is unparalleled. Um, The UNLV special collections, their paper collection is really important. Um, Of course, the State Museum has the sketch collection and the costume collection, which is really important. Short of that, short of those archives, unless you go up north, that's about it. Um, Now, there are private collections, grants is a private collection, there are other private collections that are just in storage, where the fate of those collections is still undetermined. Um, And, you know, I worry about those archives, but they are private archives, and there's only so much, they're private, they can do whatever they want with them. Um, so, but hopefully, you know, institutions like, um, university and the state museum will endeavor to try to garner some of those pieces that are currently just in storage that are from a certain point of time, you know, that will never repeat itself here. So, um, yeah, there's not a lot, I mean, there's only a handful of places you can, you can stop. For one thing, it's hard to, you know, you get a really good, understanding of this when you go and look at Grant's collection, the scale of these pieces makes it super expensive to take care of them. So with most of Grant's collection, he's able to have it on display, right? But if you think about the situation, you know, in a museum where these things have to find storage areas within a small footprint, um it's an expensive venture to figure out how to store these things and and with the fully berger collection we collected everything so we we collected an entire number so all 12 pieces from a number you know 12 backpacks so um it is complicated and there's a reason why these things are not collected is just because they take up so much space for instance, the um, very similar in terms of the costume genre is the festival genre um, from like the New Orleans um, mm. festivals. Those are really big, huge pieces too. Sometimes backpacks and headdresses and stuff. And I communicate often with that um, the um, curator with that collection, and we have the same problems. You know, he's like, "Yeah, uh, I, you know, they have to. You have to design. It's not like you can phone up if you're a museum." There are certain um, shops that support museums. They provide specialty boxes and tissues and papers, things that house and help you store in an archival way, um, textiles and costumes. None of that stuff makes any sense when it comes to preserving and housing and storing cabaret costumes. This is all trial and error work Building your own displays that are going to be able to withhold the weight of these pieces, to withhold the feathers. I mean, the whole thing is, you know, there's no playbook um, for this kind of storage and preservation. So it's a lot of extra work. And so that's why other museums just say we can't handle it.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because I... I, well, have, I want to talk about the Lido with what they did before they closed. They brought back these costumes that some of them went back at least the eighties and feathers, some feathers look I'm, better. And like how you restore, because I have a show I put on here, a Parisian cabaret, and I bought costume pieces, mostly from Greg Thompson. Cause I'm in Seattle and he has some. So the feathers were looking dingy and like, what, do, how do you wash feathers? And so I tried, so I contacted Pete. He's so gracious he gave me a couple of ideas. Why don't you talk to this person? Well, that person, why don't you talk to this person? Put me in charge of the plumacere at Jubilee, answered my phone call and helped me to figure out how to them. So I, they were pinned. I washed them in the bathtub. Don't use bleach, only use this. I had my house full of wet feathers and how to blow dry them. And they actually perked up. Yeah. And so when I did a backstage tour at the Lido to see, you know, the new feathers next to the old, but they had to take some things out wash them hair use a hair dryer there's ways to fluff them but the fabric still looks amazing and the gems and all that probably need a good polishing but most of those pieces are a lot of feathers and I have a huge appreciation for when they brought the the Nublieb I'm saying it wrong a Nublieb the new piece that was the Lido it was a 15 minute section of a tribute to the older shows and those were in their glory time especially the 80s there's one number that takes up the whole stage from one girl's, it just, it spreads out and like, okay, there was a lot of work to get those up and ready. And they still look magnificent because that it was in that glory time of the cabaret of those eighties and nineties where spend what you want.
1: And let's face it. Another part of my research that I was always, and still am super fascinated with are those experts behind the scenes that were in the wardrobe department that maintained those pieces, right? Even though they were built to an nth of degree of their life, right? They were built to last, especially the Jubilee pieces for a decade. And he thought, well, let's hope the show lasts a decade. Let's make sure that we've got pieces that are gonna work. You know, The foundations work for a decade. So they're beautifully made costumes and they're made understanding that they're gonna be working every night of the week, sometimes two to three times a day Um, for the rest of their lives, right? These costumes. Um, But that only takes you so far in terms of the lifespan of a costume. You really need the expertise behind the scenes that knows how to accomplish maintenance that will extend the life of those pieces and still allow them to work, you know, in the way they need to work. And so, you know, all of those folks and their stories are really interesting to me the other day, um, yesterday was National Legwear
0: Day. One of those. I crazy- saw that you. I shared yeah. your post. I think it was Good. you. Well, it I was crazy, it. crazy,
1: crazy, crazy <laughs> holidays. But you know, of course, so I, I shared, a, you know, a little blurb about the fishnets, and I didn't realize this, but everyone, you know, the wardrobe department explained to me how it was routine that they would have to repair fishnet yes. stockings. That the fishnet stocking was expensive enough that you wouldn't just throw it away when you got a snag or a little hole that they would be repaired by the wardrobe department. And they had to learn a certain technique and certain threads and um, that was new to me. And, and this was also interesting, the State Museum also collected from Kathy Kiefner, who worked wardrobe for many, many years in the Foley-Bergère, she had an, an object that she called her fishnet board. And it was it was a little board that looked like a miniature ironing board that she would stretch the fishnet over that allowed her to better, better do the crochet work needed to repair them. And so the state museum has a fishnet board, right? Really? Which is like so important, right? Because it references the behind the scenes expertise that happened to make sure that the show looked the whole thing. It's just a great story.
0: You had said something too about how the decades changed where Lycra did not, that's not how it started out in the forties. They didn't have Lycra. So can you talk about that too? Of Like how they don't just stick a droopy pair of panties on these girls.
1: Yeah, right. So again, I hadn't thought of it until I started, you know, when the Fully Berger collection came in, there were some surviving pieces from the sixties and there's one really particular little um, panty, worn by Lillianne Montavecchi. It, she was the star of the show and I think it was 64. And it has her name on the inside, written oh. on the inside in pencil. And there, it's made out of satin. So there is, satin is not a stretchy. There is no stretchy anything, no stretchy fibers in satin. And it is, it's is, um, it's flat line. So it's satin and then they put a cotton on the backside of the satin to give it a little more body but the entire little panty is shaped and darted and elasticized in the waistband and the legs to, for, to be form fit. Now, starting in the 70s, you were able to purchase lycra elasticized fabric. That wasn't an option before that time. So you really had the pattern pieces looked entirely different for the costumes before the stretchy fabric like lycra stuff was invented. And so, you know, that's what's really fascinating about looking at the evolution of costumes from a um, even a certain show as you really see the technological advances that happen in material over a very yeah. small period of time, really. Um, so yeah, those, those cute little satin things with darts, you know, that head towards <laughs> the back of the rear. I mean, none of that happens later on because you don't need it because the stretchiness takes care of itself as long as the <sighs> pattern piece is cut that way.
0: Well, then there's the metal bra, like at least Lido, as I know in Hello Hollywood and Jubilee, those metal bras, then you have like a regular bra cup underneath. But I don't know if that was always a thing. Cause I look at some of those pictures and they do look like they must've been darts non-stretchy fabric on the breast, appliques, but then they start having metal construction, which in the wintertime, that's not very kind to put a metal bra on, but yeah,
1: yeah, no, of course not. And I'm sure you did the same thing as we, we had women that would tell us they would hang those, those on the lights around their dressing room table to warm them up, uh, before they put them on. But yeah, the fully bridge had plenty of those, um, you know, Garments made out of metal. That's that's all they were. Um, And those, of course, were fantastic for the cabaret because they never wore out. Every once in a while, a link would break or something, but they lasted much longer than any of the textiles. And, you know, I tell this really interesting story about, you know, only in the cabaret wardrobe department do you need a solderer and a welder also (laughs) to like take care of your costumes, (laughs) Um, just exactly for those those metal, you know, rhinestone costumes. Um, But yeah, the Philippe Berger had those, and there are still some surviving pieces, headdresses that were sort of crowny looking things that were made out of that same system of linking rhinestone chain work um, and the, the underwire brassieres. um Jubilee has really those, their 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 chain link rhinestone artwork is so superior to anything the Fully Berger had. And all of that, um, all of those pieces are still in excellent condition. It's still totally viable because they're made of metal and worth I mean, I think that's where the huge value is in that Jubilee collection. If those would ever go to auction, that is a lot of that stuff. It's made, but it's just so expensive. There are still artisans who know how to do that work. Not a lot of them, but they're still out there, but that's just so wildly expensive nowadays to do it.
0: That's one thing when Pete and I were talking about these shows going away, it's the dancers We're so sad, but also the people that were specialists in that, like, I did it when I was in Paris in April. I got to go meet, it was Plumes de Paris. The grandmother had done Josephine Baker's feathers. Oh. And also they did the can skirts Lido is ostrich that's cut off the stem and then sewn in. So they ruffle. They're so beautiful. But there's always pink feathers all over the stage. So they come in weekly and would maintain them. So now these people that have the specialty work, you know, there's not that many around. They're not passing it down. It seemed like a lot of us, you keep it within the family or it's someone you're very selective of who you train to do this. And so yeah. those stories are exactly. also so hard Happily, to find. Though,
1: even though there's less work in cabaret theater for those artisans, a lot of the, that particular um, craft artwork has been saved by the fashion industry. A lot of the couturiers still yeah. employ those specialty embroiderers, the specialty feather folks, the specialty jewelers, a lot of that work. And they understand that if they don't keep those folks employed, that, that, that expertise, that artwork is just going to die off. And so <sighs> the fashion industry has really taken responsibility for maintaining a number of those specialty genres.
0: Mm. Yeah. The, when I got to go look at the feathers and there was, he was 21 this he's a protege learning from somebody who's been doing this for three generations and there were three people with their glasses on and they're tight you know they're bent over and they were weaving the feathers into almost like buckram or something and it was making this garment that is i'm gonna say it wrong haute couture that they are it's out there so they're doing something different because he's so such huge vision but it's not maybe going to be on cabaret on showgirls, but it's being appreciated because the Detail that they were doing. I'm like, that's hours and hours and hours and hours for this one square panel, maybe a foot. That that's even just a tiny part of it. So yeah, it's such a. I hope that we still appreciate that fine craftsmanship. That it's not everything is just now, you know, fast, fast fashion is what we are gotten so used to. That hopefully yeah. there's still an appreciation.
1: Yeah, I think you know. Yes, that is definitely haute couture. Um, you know, all that handwork. So I think that, you know, I, you know, of course, we're sad that this, the cabaret genre that, you know, you remember and you participated in is, is gone. It probably is going to be gone forever. Um, What comes next is unknown. I think there will be cabaret going forward, but it will be different because it's impossible to go backwards and just repeat because we have the future to deal with. So It is always evolving in here in Vegas. We don't have, there are some productions here in town that call themselves classic or traditional showgirl shows. Now, what that means today is that they have a single number within the entirety of the production that references that era. You know, Um, that's about all we get. Now, right. And so, you know, everyone wants to know, are we going to go back there? And I just sort of doubt it. For one thing, it's just terribly expensive, but it's just different. Like some of these big stars, the headliner shows, sometimes they are like bordering on cabaret shows. I mean, they really they've got, you know, a chorus line of dancers that support a principal. Right. They have numerous elaborate extravagant costume changes and sets sometimes these sets and costume changes within a single show really don't have a a, a a guiding narrative that makes sense right which is sort of the 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 thrill of cabaret is that there's not mm-hmm. particularly a guiding narrative that makes sense so maybe that's our cabaret of the moment right these headliners that have a lot of money to bring these shows to produce these shows to have a to hire real, you know, people with, you know, interesting expertise under their belt to produce these shows for us.
0: Um,
1: You know, I, I, you know, that's a glass half full kind of um, look at cabaret of the future, but I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And I wonder if, you know, I mean, they're great shows, these headliners, Katy Perry show. I mean, they're big shows. A lot of money is put into these entertainment um offerings and they are they do smell of cabaret so (laughs) that's good
0: yeah and when i talk to people in paris too that are that are now unemployed by the lido but have their own creative sites and how a lot of them said cabaret was always pushing the boundary so to go backwards isn't pushing the boundary
1: yeah
0: and so i like that mentality because i i got sad and i realized there's these creative people that have been trained in cabaret but have a vision for more inclusivity, like how there's just they have they have so much. I don't think they're just going to stop. Yeah. So I'm, it's kind of like we're, I feel like we're in a pause and sometimes wait and see what settles and then what emerges. This is off top. Well, who knows what a topic is? <laughs> Your book. I don't know if I, would, I was going to ask you to even read it. What I love so much was the introduction, and I don't know if you remember what you wrote, but I think it was such a great thing of how it was introduced to Las Vegas with cabaret. Do you want to talk about that? Because you talk about the gambling halls in the forties and how things did come from Paris, but how it changed. Like Vegas came up because of this. And also that Vegas and Paris could be side by side, but different. Yeah. So just all your research to how much of Paris shows up in this and how much is these were, were similar, but Vegas has this besides just the size of the stage.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, when, so Cabaret first starts making the scene in Vegas in the 1940s, the late 40s. And at first it looks more like burlesque and vaudeville than traditional Parisian Cabaret. Um, Really, from my point of view, the first, Las Vegas first tips its toe into, the cabaret that would ultimately define Las Vegas in 1958 when Lido lands at the Stardust and that is such a sensation for the tourists that come into the city that the Tropicana which opens just a you know in 57 I think the Tropicana opened the Lido's show was such a, such a sensation that the Tropicana in 59 starts reaching out to the Fully Beger to see if they can license the show and bring it Ah, oh, really th- that stage. So <clears throat> at first when the Tropicana opened that wasn't their plan. They had headliners in, you know, they book like a headliner for a month, n- another headliner and they had their own little small um, Tropicana dancers dance troupe and that was their plan at first, but because Lido was such a sensation and it was so, you know, you'll see this, this word used describing the both Lido and the Folies Bergereis continental theater right with um, and it was and because traveling for Americans to travel to Paris was not easy it was expensive it was hard it was dangerous there weren't a lot of opportunities so you know it wasn't like well maybe i'll just see it in paris well, you know it was like you saw it in las vegas and you didn't see it at all so it was super significant to have a version of the Foley-Bergere in Las Vegas. And it did attract a lot of bodies. And, you know, at that point in time, from the properties, the casino's perspective, the, the idea was to get tourists into the casino, however they could. So if the Foley-Bergere was a lost leader, that was fine. At least they got these bodies in there, which they could then send out Onto the gambling floor once the Folie Berger curtain came down, right? And that was worth it for them. And so entertainment was just part of the deal when you came to Las Vegas. It wasn't, the ticket price wasn't exorbitant. And, and most and a lot of times you'll hear about the, the Tropicana um, giving away tickets, wanting people to sit through the show, to have a few drinks, and then go out drunk on the casino yeah. floor, right? That was. That was in the Tropicana's best interest to have you know, yeah. people playing slots drunk. So, um, so you know, it was just super successful from the very beginning. And the other thing that um, the administrators discovered was that it appealed equally to men and women. Even though there was a lot of bareness that one would think would appeal mostly to men, it was just all done in such a beautiful, artistic, elegant manner that it was just as appealing to women, just as a dance, as an art form. And so um, it was an easy um, ticket to sell, an easy ticket and show to market. Um, It sort of marketed itself. And once these, um, a lot of, in the very beginning, a lot of these The original dancers were imported from Paris to come here to dance in our show. And like I said, a lot of these people stayed here. They started working on our stages and they liked it here in Vegas. They met people, they got married, they raised families, they bought homes, they stayed here, they left the show, they went on to have their second careers. And these are the people that made Las Vegas what it is today. So I, you know, I really do consider these early cabaret shows really you know, you know, for our, our Vegas pioneers, um, our original you know, cast and crew from original cabaret shows. So it's, it's really important to me that we honor those folks and talk about their stories and how they contributed to the Las Vegas legacy, because it is a legacy that it is entirely unique. Um, I can't think of another city in the world that really was just built on its entertainment scene and still is really kind of the same city. I mean, only in this last decade has Las Vegas like made a foray into like professional sports. I mean, there wasn't, I mean, that's, you know there wasn't really another reason to come here. You know, you come here for the casinos and the entertainment. I mean, so now it's, 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 you know it's becoming a bigger, more mature city now but um for decades and decades and decades this city um and i think it's fascinating that we still i mean i think that even the young folks um have a visual identity of vegas that really is defined by the showgirl they i I think that young people recognize the showgirls aren't particularly um you know they're they're vintage you know it's a vintage Mm -hmm. statement but it's sort of kitschy, cool, vintage Vegas, right? It's still yeah. supported and embraced, and the city, like like you said, the sign is up. You know, there's still plenty of marketing that goes on for this city that references vintage Vegas and the classic showgirl. So it still has some, you know, inherent value for tourists. We'll see going forward, but it is definitely part of the
0: legacy. Oh, this has been, I just think when I, I mean, the more, you know, the dumber you feel sometimes (laughs) like there's so much and that you're investing so much. I mean, it's to write a book. So I'm curious Well, we want to make sure people can find it. So I bought it on Amazon or did I, or no, did I go to your website? You can, it's available on Amazon. I think that's how I bought it. It's so many pictures. I love that too, because I'm reading Las Vegas show, somebody else and get, gave me a book on Las Vegas showgirl I've got a stack and I've got Bob Matthew's new book, I've got the right. Lito's book and I want to read, I don't want to just skim the pictures now, I want to read like who are these people, the history of it matters to me more. So for you writing this, what has this done for you? Because I know your curiosity to do this much work you weren't a showgirl that was trying to connect back to some memories you came at it differently, what has this done for you yes. as far as...
1: I think Um, Well, I I understand now, um, you know, the significance of this particular art form, this genre to Las Vegas, and that's important to me in terms of developing the costume and textile collection at the State Museum. Um, I don't see any way to ignore um, this this point in time, but I, um, because I approached this research project, mostly with, you know, as a costume historian, with the expertise of building and designing costumes and the evolution of costume. I sort of, you know, my look at the genre, I think is super unique and different Mm -hmm. from like your look back as a historian, right? Because you have an entirely different perspective based on your experience and so do I so my my what I document in that book does reference the entirety of the experience but with a sort of heavy hand on the the costumes that um sort of a behind the scenes um interpretation of the costumes that someone might not have so so this book is, is unique in that way. And I think um, for me going forward as a costume historian, it just informs everything else that I am studying. Um, for instance, I, I've recently had a big, you know, Barbie fashion project that I've been involved with. And I can and, and you know, one of the Barbie dolls fashion designers is Bob Mackie. And so it's just an interesting look, knowing what Bob Mackie's work looks like for Jubilee and then how he translated that work for, you know, Barbie. And then I also worked with Bob Mackie when he designed the costumes for Mitzi Gaynor's Traveling Roadshow, her music, song and dance show. So it's, it's interesting to me to be able to contrast and compare one single designer's work in these different bodies and that's fascinating and it just sort of piques my interest and i feel like there's other research projects going forward based on what i learned just researching cabaret here in vegas how it just so it's all kind of interconnected um but i just have developed a really interesting and um new perspective for the cast and crew of these shows. Um, the, you know, like I remember one of the, one of the um, contracts, early contracts, I, I discovered was from 1959, which would have been the first year the Fully Berger was produced. And this woman was cast in the show and she, in her contract it stated that she would, I'm pretty sure it was 13 shows a week, and she earned like $129 a week. Right. And like, you know, and I talked to people from that era, they're like, well, that wasn't a bad, that was kind of like a great salary, but that's a lot of work. Right. And that's your, you know, there are folks that said you you never were really in it for the money. It was really the <laughs> love of the show and, and, and the whole thing. But, you know, there's, there's something great about, you know, knowing that people were performing for all those years and, and then it's interesting for me to find out what they do in their second career, because that showgirl career is very short uh, yeah. for most people. And so there's always a second career. And that's fascinating to me to see, you know, did you stay in Vegas? What are you doing now? How is what you're doing now related to what you learned and your experiences in cabaret? So. Um, all of those stories are really important to me as I still am living in Vegas and, you know, I'm part of the community and I'm interested in telling these stories using material objects like costumes and um, sketches, right? So, so yes, it's all, it's all still part of my ongoing research, just in the, in the history of costume and fashion.
0: I will be making my way down there because I really, there's things I want to see again, but i never made it there. I wanted to see the neon graveyard. Mm-hmm. There's, there's other things that just we didn't have time for. So I realized I need, I need at least a week. Yeah. I'm talking to Stacey Law and I interviewed her on a showgirl bootcamp. Right. I talked to Miss because I have a show here. It's only like 12 dancers. Could we bring it down there? Maybe we could pair up with some retired dancers or something. And then I want my dancers to go see the museum, because I talk about showgirls, I go. I don't want them to just put the costumes on without understanding the history and and why it matters and the legacy that goes before. And I think most of them are curious, and I am on and on about it. So people actually listen to the podcast, and then I will link some history things. Like I posted yours about happy, like where, <laughs> like the history of the fishnet. Like just maybe some of us care and some don't, but I think those that, that do, we like finding each other. Yeah. And knowing there's people that are really not just doing this as a job, that they're actually passionate about it and the preservation matters. Yeah. And it just feels like it's honoring to these years that are so unique that there's never been anything like this. That blip of time and the yeah. whole timeline is like was magical and over the top. And
1: exactly. That's our why lives. your pod that's why Sherry, your podcast is important. These are stories that are just gonna get lost with time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like, you know, a classic story is that, you know, the burning of the sets and costumes every other year story. I mean, that was, you know, that's, that was a hard one to prove. And, um, it's a fascinating story, you know, sad, but true, fascinating part of the period of time. So, yeah, I think the more we talk about this and especially now it's easier to, you know, digitally save these things is important so I'm glad that that you care enough to yeah. these
0: voices yeah and finding these other people that do so your book is called the follies Berger in las vegas by karen fetter and your k-a-r-a-n because I mistyped it couldn't find you again and forward by jerry jackson and that's also you know there's people that I've tried to reach out to choreographers and we're just losing you know this the reality of our age is that we can we want to get these stories and this representation while we still have either them or people that work close with them to tell, tell it closer to.
1: Have you been able to talk to Jerry?
0: I haven't. I'm going to, I think I might've reached out once I had rich Rizzo. He was going to do it. And he was in the hospital. He said as soon as I get out of the hospital, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't work with him. And I wanted to, um, Oh my gosh. Oh. The funky one that did all the app car show. I know his name. I can't think of it. I my, one of my favorite choreographers. Then he did all the, the dunes and all that. Oh gosh, that's terrible! I'm forgetting his name. Everybody's listening is yelling at the end of their <laughs> <laughs> right now. I can't think. Of yeah, but there's just a few that have passed just recently, and it's just um, feels really important that we have the stories because there's people that I interview that their grandchildren will say, "I had no idea my grandma did this. My grandma's a badass." I'm like really impressed. So that's the part too. Is just you know, instead of hearing, they get to hear their their own sister, mother, wife whoever tell the story themselves. So if they passed on, it's not just in a scrapbook somewhere. Absolutely. So Karen, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm excited to sit and that's my goal this, this week is to, to read the whole thing slowly good, and just soak it in and learn more and more. So great. best to you. And I, when I come down there, I will definitely look you up because I'm thrilled for what you're doing and I want to see it firsthand.
1: Fantastic. I look forward to it. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you.